read. We'll be in Romans 8, verses 1 through, uh, actually we're 1 through 13. I know kind of the, the idea breaks at 11, <clears throat> but verses 12 and 13 carry <clears throat> some of the application of 1 through 11. So we're going to go all the way through 13 in Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> and this is, uh, some of you might have heard words like this before, ideas like this before, but <clears throat> this is how we begin. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh uh, is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Pray with me. Father, as we get into this passage, we do pray for your clarity. It could strengthen our hearts to have a greater confidence in you, knowing who we are and who we are not. We ask, God, that your Spirit strengthen us as we go through this passage that is just more evidence of your graciousness towards us, which we realize in your Son, Jesus, and we pray it in His name. <clears throat> Amen. Okay, so we pick a passage like this as we're going through this whole plan of how do we walk with Jesus, what has He done, Israel, the history there, its failure, the sending of Jesus into this world, the birth of the church, the coming of the Spirit. We use a passage like this because I think many of us in this room, or perhaps many that you are in uh, discipling relationships with, that you're investing in, have this sort of struggle, and they're not really sure how to define it. And if you define it wrong, you read a passage like Romans 8, 1 through 11, and you get really confused. Um, you go, I, this, 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 I, this is how I'm feeling. I must not be pleasing God. God must be angry with me. I must be condemned. He must be frustrated with me. And many in this room sometimes had that feeling about God toward them. They go, man, God, is he, is he for me or is he against me? Does he love me or does he hate me? Am I pleasing him or am I not pleasing him? And in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is going through great lengths to explain how those who are in Christ are free in him. They are not condemned. They, are, they have life. 
They don't have death. They have life. He goes to great lengths through this, and he's an appropriate kind of guy to do that. If you remember, uh, he was okay murdering Christians. If you think about his life, he was, he was all right with the execution of people he thought were going against the law. And yet, what did Jesus do but in Acts chapter 9, enter into his life and transform it? So think about somebody who might deal significantly with self-condemnation. Who might deal significantly with, does God love me? Is God for me? When you think about what he has done, right? He's done lots of righteous things, but he's also done things that all of us would go, well, I haven't done that. I'm holier than Paul, whatever you might want to say. <clears throat> so we have the Apostle Paul who before his coming to the Lord was okay with the murdering of Christians. And actually, we talk about how he is zealous to persecute those who were against the law. Persecute them. So you have that guy who is now talking to the Romans and explaining to them how they are free. And for us, it's an important engagement in our mind because you see this in chapter 6, chapter 7, and in chapter 8 about this identity part of being a Christian. Identity is such an important thing. Anybody ever get identity crisis? You're like, I don't know who I am or what I'm doing or anything like that, right? Like, I'm not just talking midlife crisis. I'm talking when you really struggle with who you are. And you have those questions and those doubts like, does God love me? That I assume maybe everybody in this room has asked that or is asking that. Does God love me? Does he even really does he care? Is this is like am I am I okay here? And passages like Romans 8 are here to remind us of some significant truths and then encourage us to live in accordance with the truth. So you'll you'll see phrases like this if you do like Bible studies, you'll you'll hear about indicatives and imperatives. And indicatives is kind of a verb verb tense, right? It's like things that are true, and imperatives are things that you do. And in Paul, you will generally find a, a normal order of truth statements followed by commands. And he doesn't do the order the other way, because if you go to action first, sometimes you get confused. So Paul's kind of methodology and how he would teach was, I'm going to tell you things that are true, I'm going to tell you how that applies. So that's how he would kind of always make it work. This is true, now this is how it applies. You have other epistles, like the book of James, that don't do that. The book of James is all about this is how it applies. This is how it applies. He's, like, he, he just assumes the truth statements, and he's like, now, this is how you walk your faith out. Well, Paul doesn't do that. He's working with truth, and then he moves to actions. And that's why our memory verse is what it is in Romans 12. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your worship. And we'll follow this in some easy breakdowns. We'll go 1 through 4, 5 through 8. 9, 10, 11, and then we'll just go to 12 and 13 to get some of how Paul sees this being applied. 1 through 4, he has a simple idea that is hard for us to live out. You, Christian, are not condemned. You're not condemned. And condemnation in this passage is specifically thinking about like this future uh, judicial sense where we stand before the Lord. Like, are we His or are we not? And he says this in verse 1. There is therefore, because of what Jesus has done, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those in Jesus are not condemned. It comes from actually the end of chapter 7. 
He's talking, wretched man am I, who will deliver me from this life of this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus delivers us. So then he brings that idea in. He goes, so there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God is not mad at you. He is not angry with you. He's not sitting there like a judge going, I can't wait to get them by themselves. I can't wait. I need to teach them a thing or two. That is not how God acts towards those who are in Christ. But that is so often how we feel God acts towards those who are in Christ. Because we have a flawed view of God. It is hard for us to recognize that God, being perfect in every way, can say, don't condemn you. Don't condemn you. You are free. You have life. And he can mean it. Because we so often, and this is inappropriate of us, but we so often get our view of God through our relationships with those in our life, specifically of those in authority. And how often do we let down those who trust us, or do we feel like we're let down by those who trust us? And so we recognize that people in our lives have a very difficult time staying consistent in how we act toward us, with us, whatever it might be. And so we recognize, man, it feels very transactional here, but in this regard, God is not transactional because of what Jesus has done for the Christian. It's not just like, okay, well, you did bad thus, you know, I'm mad at you. And I don't mean that his discipline to help bring us about, but even his discipline is done lovingly. It's done graciously and gladly to make us more like his son. And so that idea itself, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now imagine how this verse applies when you inevitably sin. What can you do? Downward spiral, here I go, world is over, everything's going to be done. I knew it, I'm a bad Christian Everybody hates me. Everybody can do this thing better than I can. I am just not, I cannot measure up to what you know, Jesus wants me to do. Of course you can't. Does Romans 8.1 only apply when you're having a good day? No. Because it's about what Jesus has done for you. Not what you have done. It's about what Jesus has done for you. And so when you cannot seem to get it straight, when you cannot seem to live like you think you should, and even then you're screwing up, right? You're not condemned. In verse 2, Paul gives a reason. For the law of the spirit of life, and when you think of law in this term, because law kind of goes back and forth, but law in this term is that the, the, the rule or the authority, the law of the spirit, the rule of the spirit of life has set you free from the rule or the authority of sin and death. That's why there's no condemnation, because the spirit has set you free. You are not condemned. Whereas you used to be living in sin and death. But that isn't the case anymore. If you want to understand more deeply those truths, Romans 6 verses 1 through 14 bring you through an argument about how you are now a slave of righteousness, not a slave of sin. 
And so he's building on these ideas, summarizing them here for us in chapter 8. You're not dead. You are alive. And he explains it again. So there's no condemnation for this reason. Now look, explaining what God has done in verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh. And what does the law do? The law points us to our need. Shows us that we are unable. And Paul will even say at times, the law incites our flesh. It, you know, in a sense, makes us, because our flesh is weak, it makes us sin more. When we realize there's things there, and you see this in any example, hey, don't go do that. And you're like, well, now I want to do it. Had you not told me not to, I'd probably be okay, but you told me not to, and so now I will. It's just what happens. Rules, boundaries, guidelines, whatever, when those things show up in our lives, we are ready to break them. Weakened by the flesh, could not do. This is what God has done. Look at the second half of verse 3. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Interesting phrasing there. What He's trying to say, He's trying to associate Jesus with us, fully God and fully man, but not sinful. That's why he's using that idea of likeness. Sent in the likeness of human flesh, not that it just kind of appears as. He is a human. But the difference between you and Jesus, my friend, is that Jesus didn't sin. And so his life on this earth is different than yours and mine, was different than yours and mine. So Jesus was sent into this world... In the likeness of flesh and for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. How? Through his death. Through his death. Because Jesus died, he took the punishment for sin that was due to all of us. And then look at verse 4. Why did he do this? And I love this. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So verse 4, what is he saying? Jesus came into this world and he died so that what the law demanded of us to live right and upright before God, the requirement, the righteous requirement of the law could be fulfilled in us. Well, how is it fulfilled in us? Jesus did it perfectly. Through faith in Christ, the demand that Jesus perfectly fulfilled is applied to us. That is how the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. We could never do, and this is what he says, we could never do what was demanded of us by God because we are marred by sin. The requirement doesn't change, and this is important. Because any parent in this room or kid in this room knows that my parents will change their minds if we just try hard enough. I knew that if I argued with my mom enough about my punishment, I could get out of it. I knew it. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? She'd make me a list. You're grounded for a week. What if I take the garbage out? Okay, not a week, right? Uh, and we parents are hard. Be, like, it's very difficult for us to stay consistent because we love our kids and we're weak. And so we're like, well, you know what? If I punish you, I, I kind of have to punish everybody. And I don't want to do that. Because I would rather just do what I want. So let's find a way to make this thing work out. So hard for us to be consistent. Not so for God. 
the standard for God, which is perfection, has never changed. Never changed. The ability for us to ascend to that has never changed because we can't. But the means by which it can be applied through Jesus is there for us. Now, verse 4, verse 3, verse 2, verse 1, remember how we started. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because anything that you or I could be condemned for, any failure, any imperfection, any falling short, anything, has been covered over in Jesus. Because it has been covered over in Jesus... The view of God towards us is that of perfection. You stand totally redeemed, totally clean. And this is one of the hardest things for us to not be condemned, to be free, to actually be free. Because we know what we did. And we still feel, because we operate in this world that is full of transactions. I do this, I get this punishment or this reward. I live like this, I work this hard, I get this payment. I work extra hard, I get this payment. I don't, right? like, so we know if I, if I operate in this way, I usually am rewarded in this way. But that is different in God's economy. That's not how he operates. He applies to us everything that Jesus did. And the condemnation which we are due, he does not If, we have to remember the clause, if we're in Christ. If we are not in Christ, if we do not have faith in Jesus, then we are condemned. So if we're in Christ, we are not condemned. If we are not in Christ, we are condemned. If we don't belong to Jesus, condemnation is ours. So we do this class, and uh, I, I help with a class at Dallas Seminary from time to time, and I think I've told about this assignment. And, and one of my students taught me something about a year ago. It was really cool. Um, where the students write this paper that they cannot get a good grade on. They can get an okay grade on it, but like no one's going to do this paper in a way that's going to give them 100 or 99 or 98 for the most part. Like, so they're going to get an A minus, B plus, C, D, F, zero sometimes if it's, they don't turn it in or it's really bad, but... So people have gotten like from 50s to 80s to 90s, whatever. And they're all mad about it. They all get mad about it. And so, hey, hon, I go get all my emails. Hey, Hans, you know, what could I do? Could I make this up? Could I rewrite it? And I always just go, hey, why don't we wait till we get through the next lesson or like the next week of lectures and then we'll talk about it. Because what happens at the next week of lectures is you are given a 100 on that assignment. And I always have to say, guys, this is not for every single assignment. This is one assignment because the learning objective was to understand grace. <clears throat> you need to recognize that you do not measure up, and you need to be bugged about not measuring up. But then you have to process, will you actually receive what we will give to you as a 100? And a lot of students are like, uh, no. And I always tell them, you're crazy. You're going to do bad enough on future papers. Go ahead and take it. You will get bad grades. You will be frustrated. Take it. I promise you. So if some person turns it in two weeks late, gets a 45, they get 100. Some person uh, like does their best, gets a 95, they get 100. 
You get a little annoyed at the 45 that way, don't you? Because Jesus tells a parable about like workers in the vineyard and how they all get the same payment. And I always have to process it with the students because it's really difficult for them to have the requirements of the grade applied to them. Hey, you can't do it, but we'll give you a 100. And it's an educational environment, and everybody's like, oh, I don't like that. I'm like, no, education's about learning objectives, it's not about grades. And so this is the whole thing, the paper writing, the doing badly, the conversation about grace, all of this is so that you can understand more about grace. That's why it's there. And I was talking to a student one time. And we have to do these video chats where I catch up with the students. How was it? What did you process? Whatever else. And one guy goes, I took it. I took the, took the 100. We always have to talk about why did you take it. <clears throat> and he's like, because I realized that the only person that could change the grade for me was the professor, being the guy who actually has the class. I just kind of, I'm an underling for him. He has the power to change the grade. He is offering me the ability to change my grade. And it didn't matter any other conversation that I had or any other thinking that I had or any other reasoning that I had. The person in authority, the professor, said, I will change this for you if you take it. He's like, so when I heard that, I realized I should take it. But friends, it's the same thing if you're in this room today and you're not a believer. The Lord offers you his son. A 100. A 100. You get it through faith in him. And you don't, you don't have to go to your friends and go, should I take this? What do you think? What should I do? What should I do? Right? Because they have no authority to actually change anything. They can't change it. They could give you advice, but they can't change it. One person can change your status from not righteous to righteous, and it is God. Through one way, the Lord Jesus. And Romans 8.1 then applies to you. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. He continues, verses 5 through 8, talking about the life you have in the Spirit. You are alive in the Spirit. So he says there's no condemnation, the law of death over here, the law of the Spirit, you're alive over here. So in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, he continues this on. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. That means if you live outside of the Lord, you do not know Him, then your mind is set on things of the flesh, which is going to end in death. But those who live their lives according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is, what's that word? Death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Those who walk around condemned or guilt-ridden do not have peace. We are trying to cope very often with our falling short, but peace is often something that evades us. Set the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And if you read these with the wrong mind or kind of the wrong lens on, you're going to get confused. Because a young believer or an older believer, it doesn't really matter, but you read this and you've had a bad day and you're like, God is mad at me. He's mad at me. My mind is being hostile to him. My life is not reflecting him. The things that I'm doing, he doesn't want it. He doesn't like it. He doesn't love it. You can say all of those things if you're reading this and you're having a bad day. If you're having a good day, you're like, man, I'm crushing it. Everything about my day has been great. God's not, I'm not hostile to God. Everything's great. 
But if you feel like you're having a bad day, you go, well, those who are in the flesh can't please God. God must not be pleasing to God today. And we kind of have this way of thinking, I'm doomed. Like we float in and out of God's favor. But you have to keep reading so that you do not think like that. Because he says in verses 9 through 11 that you, Christian, your identity is assured. It is known. It is confirmed. It is sealed by what Jesus has done for you. And this is why he turns. Because I think he anticipates the objection or the concern that the Roman reader might have. Well, I don't want to be hostile to God. So he has to remind them in verse 9. You, however, Romans... You, however, member of Genesis Community Church who is in Christ, you who belong to the Lord Jesus, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, meaning that you belong to Him. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And you can feel how he's anticipating that concern that mounts up in us of going, I don't want to have God be mad at me. And he's like, he's not. Because you're in the spirit. I'm not talking to you as if you're in the flesh. I'm showing the difference between those who operate within, you know, in this world and those who do not. The person who lives in this world apart from Jesus has no capacity to think about God in the right ways. That must be enabled by God, given by God, moved along by His Spirit. Whereas the person who is in Christ has the ability to think about God because they have the Spirit of God who can enlighten them and reveal to them from the Scriptures who He truly is. So it's like I'm talking to you because you're in the Spirit. You're not in the flesh. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, though the body, though the body is dead because of sin, that means your mortal body, you're going to die. Sin has affected your body. It breaks down and it dies. So the body is dead because of sin. Jesus is fixing that with the resurrection. Don't forget. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. That means the Spirit's not leaving. Spirit's there. You don't get an upgrade of the Spirit in heaven. You get an upgrade of the body. Spirit's still there. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, can we just stop for a second? I don't think anyone in this room lives with the joy that that verse says we should, essentially, that it brings out of us. If the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, like the same one? Yep, the same one. You mean the exact same Spirit that provided, right, the resurrection of Jesus is in us? Yes! It's from God, and it is yours. If that Spirit is in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is a neglected part of how we live in this world. Because we need to be living for what is to come and not what is. And what he is trying to say is you need to root yourself in what's going to come because what comes in this world through our mortal fallen bodies, they break down. They get cancer. They die. They decay. They hurt. Every single day, you are confronted with the fact that your body is broken. It does not do what you want. It does not look how you want. And he is saying, it's about what's to come. 
Jesus is raising you, resurrecting you, giving you new life, giving you new hope, giving you new joy in His Son, right? The work of Jesus, the Spirit, will bring us up. And that needs to be something that we anchor ourselves to. But so often we live for this world. So often we live as if this world is the most important. The things of this world are the most important. The attitudes of this world are the most important. The possessions of this world are the most important. How we can make our bodies look and behave in this world is the most important thing. And while we need to be stewards of what God has given us, whatever that might be, we need to recognize that it will always fall short and God is working something else out. So in all of this, we need to rejoice Rejoice over our salvation and not live guilt or doubt-ridden about who we are. And at the same time, if you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Jesus, no gymnastics you have to do. There's no, there's no amount of cleaning up that will be sufficient for what the Lord will do in and through you. He's not like, well, get 10% of the way there and I'll do come. It's not how He works. To get all of Him. And then Paul, in an appropriate Paul fashion, gives us his application. And that's why we continue on. If you read uh, Doug Moo's commentary, I really like on Romans, so if you want a commentary, you can have that one. Uh, borrow it from me or buy it, whatever. But he grabs these verses to highlight the application that comes from it. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you'll die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so he starts to kind of hybridize the argument a little bit, which is kind of funny. And this is what Paul does. He's like, so God has done everything for you. There's nothing else you can do. You are not condemned. So, reveal what is true about that in how you live. And so Paul has this way, he does, he, he does not somehow kind of divide the brain in two and go, oh, well, there's just true things and then there's true behavior. Like for him, everything is integrated. And so he's like, because these things are true, of course, you would live this way. Now think about it, we're not debtors according to the flesh. Thus, to whom are we debtors? The Spirit. Romans chapter 6, you're slaves of righteousness. And so he uses these arguments to go, so, so live like that. So live like that. It's like when you talk to your kids, and maybe some of you in this room are, uh, have like family rules. You have family rules. Wherever you go, you carry the name of the whatever family. And this is how our family operates. We do it like this. I've been to a friend's house one time, and it's like they had all the rules listed out. Like, you know, and it was really pretty and artsy, so uh, it didn't look too legalistic. But it's all out there. Uh, and like, this, is what, this is what we do, and this is how we live. And so not operating in that, and this is so important for us in regard to how we walk with the Lord, not operating in that does not mean that we aren't the Lord's. If we don't reflect Him perfectly, when we sin, when we stumble, when we struggle, it doesn't mean that we don't belong to Him. It means that we have gone about something other than the family business. The family business operates a certain way. It's business of the kingdom. And often... We live in a way that doesn't reflect what actually is true, that doesn't reveal what is actually true. To live in step with what God has done for us in Christ. 
So this is what in that commentary it says. And I love how he just tries to, tries to do this because he just admits Paul's going to merge these worlds of what is true and how you behave. And this is what he says. In a way that we cannot finally synthesize in a neat logical argument, Paul insists that what God has done for us in Christ is the sole and final grounds for our eternal life. And at the same time, as he insists on the indispensability of holy living as the precondition for attaining that life. And so he just puts these things together. If you are belonging to the Lord, you live for the Lord. Neither the indicative, what God has done for us in Christ, nor the imperative, what we are commanded to do, can be eliminated. Nor can they be severed from one another. They are inextricably connected. The point of that connection in this passage is the Spirit. So it is a live in keeping with what God has done in you. To reflect, to think, to act, to love, and to serve, and to treat others in the same fashion. That we might shine brightly for the Lord as people who are not condemned. And think about that. People who know they are not condemned live differently with their failures. If you don't have a category for complete and absolute forgiveness, then in many ways you're, you're walking on eggshells, just hoping you don't screw up too much. Not doing too much wrong, not doing too much harm, just trying to kind of just trying to do right, just trying to be right, just trying to act right, just trying to behave right, just trying to be kind, do the things I know that I need to do, because there's no capacity for blowing it. Like no 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 category for if I blow it, what happens? This is also important for us as we see people who walk into our church gatherings who have found the Lord. And we go, you? You? We went to high school together. I know what you did. I know what we did. What are you doing here? Instead of, welcome home. You know, you too. You found him too. It totally changes the way that we talk to each other. It changes the way that we as a church family look at each other what we believe about one another, the hope that we have for each other. Because we go, well, if the Lord's not going to condemn you, what in the world do I need to do that for? As your brother, as your sister, just need to treat you in the same way the Lord has. As one who's not condemned. When your friend or somebody you're discipling is just caught, and they're like, I'm just not sure the Lord loves me. I did it again. I sinned again. I can't shake this thing. We can go right to Romans 8.1 and just go, what has changed about what God has said about you? What has changed? Anything? No. Because God hasn't changed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is none now, there is none later. You are free. You are the Lord's. And if you do not know the Lord this morning, through faith, the same statement can apply to you. 
Trust in Him. It's not like you have to level up to it. The righteous requirement is completely applied. By just going, Lord, I trust You. I believe in You. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. Jesus has done it all. And I want to pray that we are a church that for ourselves can live in this reality, but also for one another, that we can treat each other with these same truths, that we can talk to one another in the same way and look at one another in the same way the Lord looks at them. Because it's transformative to be able to do that. Hopefully, joyfully, gladly, and freely.